What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. I would not have known what is covetous. If the law had not said, you shall not covet, but sin is seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me in all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin is seizing an opportunity that the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Thank you, Amanda, for reading for us today. From what we heard, can you guess the theme of today's message? As you were listening, I'm sure you noticed how many times law or commandment was said. Laws are good, but sometimes they don't make sense. Consider these Canadian laws. In a city in Ontario, it is against the law to climb a tree. Countrywide, it is illegal to scare the queen. In Poco, you're only allowed to own up to four pet rats at a time. It is illegal to sell a stove in Vancouver on a Wednesday. Actually, that last one has been repealed, so go ahead and sell your stoves whenever you want. But it makes sense that it would be repealed, because the law itself doesn't make sense. When it comes to God's law found in the Bible, there's a lot of confusion. Often, his law doesn't make sense to us. Sometimes it makes us angry. I'm sure we've all felt the pressure from people asking why we follow a God who tells us we can't do this or we have to do that. In today's passage, the word law shows up six times, the word commandment five times, and one law is quoted. That's a total of 12 references to the Old Testament law. Paul wants to make sure that we understand the relationship we have with the law as those reborn by the Holy Spirit into the family of God. But wait, if you've been tracking with us in this series, you know that Paul has just told us that we are not under the law anymore. You can catch up online if you've missed any of the sermons in this series. Jesus has fulfilled the law on our behalf, and through his death and resurrection, he offers his perfect record to us. So if that's the case, then what relevance does God's law have to us today? We have a hard enough time keeping up with what Jesus teaches in the New Testament. Besides, it seems that the more we know the law of God, the more we find ourselves caught in sin. Paul even says in Romans 7 verse 5, which we looked at last week, that our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. You would think that the better we know God's law, the less we would walk in sin. There seems to be a flaw in the argument. And that's where our text picks up today. Romans 7, 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. This echoes Romans three twenty, where Paul says that knowledge of sin comes through the law. Paul wants to make it abundantly clear that the law itself is not sin. 
Instead, the purpose of the law is to prove sin. It does this by simultaneously revealing God's heart. The law describes for us, to some extent, the nature of God. And in today's final verse, verse 12, we get three great words to describe God's law and to describe God himself. Holy, righteous, good. God is holy. He is set apart. He is distinct. He's unlike any other. He is righteous in that he is justifiable, morally right, just, and equitable. He is good. He is pleasing and desirable. God's law puts God's character into perspective, revealing to us who God is, what he is like. We see that God also extends who he is to who he has created us to be. Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. We are made in the image of God to represent God on earth. Our task is to steward the earth, to rule over it like God would, with compassion and love and goodness and justice. We were made to be like God. The law is a framework for us to understand what that means. It's like bankers working with counterfeit money. They handle real money over and over and over again so that when fake money comes through, they can identify it in an instant. God reveals himself through the law so that when sin rears its ugly head, we can identify it. The law proves sin. Unfortunately, we also come face to face with our own hearts through the law. Paul writes in the next verses, For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. God's law reveals who God really is, but it also reveals who we really are. The law of God reveals who we really are. James, the brother of Jesus, writes a letter later in the Bible and refers to the law of God as the mirror for our hearts, revealing what is deep inside of us. Paul notes that it was only when the law said, do not covet, that he found covetousness reflected in his own heart. You shall not covet is the last of the Ten Commandments. Paul might have been using it to refer to the entire law, but we should also notice that this Tenth Commandment is unique from the other nine. The other nine commandments deal with actions and activities, things like stealing, resting, worshiping, honoring our parents, outward acts. This tenth commandment pierces the heart. To covet is to want something someone else has. It is a jealous desire, a yearning for that which does not belong to us. No matter how perfect Paul was in his actions, his heart was wicked and sinful in its desires. When we look into the law, we discover that all our heart wants is lawlessness. When we know the heart of God, our own heart wants everything opposite. My family enjoys having dinner together. We have good food. We have good conversation. It's usually a pleasant time. Of course, at the end of the meal, we have to do the dishes. And often my father will ask my brother or myself to take care of them. Even if we were going to do them anyways, Having someone tell us or ask us to do the dishes makes us want to do it less. Am I the only one? God cares deeply for your heart. 
Jesus highlights the heart intent of the law, most notably in the Sermon of the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7. Over and over again, he says, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, and then he takes the commandments deeper, revealing that they are not about behavior modification, but rather they are for heart transformation. Jesus summarizes the entirety of the law and the prophets through two commandments. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Wanting what does not belong to us speaks to both a lack of love for God and a lack of love for our neighbor. To jealously want more than we have reveals a disbelief that God is trustworthy or can provide for us. When we seek more than we have and we are unsatisfied with what has been given to us, we show our hearts to be selfish and hard, lacking faith that God knows what he's doing, even lacking faith that God is good. When we want what belongs to someone else, we are jealous of the other person. We don't love them appropriately. We want what they have. This breeds all sorts of sin and bitterness. Going back to James, we can see how the heart spills out to the other nine commands in James 4. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. So I ask you, what is it you want? What is it that you desire? Our hearts fly to all sorts of things. Even good things can be distorted to become idols to us. Even God's good and holy law can become a means by which sin creeps up on us. Notice how James weaved together coveting with all sorts of other sins. Covetousness reveals our hearts, hearts that are desperately wicked and diseased with sin. If you go to the doctor with an ailment, you want to know what's wrong. The doctor can run her tests and come up with a diagnosis for your condition. Does her diagnosis cause the condition? No. It simply identifies the condition you already have. It was not the law that made Paul covet. It was the law that revealed that he always had a covetous heart. The law is how the good physician diagnoses our condition. God's law reveals who we really are. It reveals our distorted and sinful hearts. So what if God just never revealed his law to us? No revelation, no sin. Not quite. Back in Romans 2, Paul states that people who do not explicitly have the law keep the law out of their own conscience. God has programmed his law into us. You can check out Psalm 139 to see how that's fleshed out. But we inherently know something of the nature of God. That's why we can agree that murder is wrong, that theft is wrong, and so on. So the law proves sin, but it does more than that. It also provokes sin. It aggravates and arouses sin. Look again at Romans 7 verse 8. Sin sees an opportunity through the commandment. When the law is brought in, 
sin takes its chance and strikes. When Cain's sacrifice in Genesis 4 is rejected by God, Cain gets angry. God speaks with Cain to lead him in the way he should go and describes sin almost as a wild animal, hiding and ready to pounce if Cain is not careful. If you do not do well, God said to Cain, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Sin's desire is for us, by which God means sin sets itself against us. It crouches like a snake, coiled and ready to strike. Verses 9 to 11 demonstrate the deadliness of sin as it distorts our relationship to the law. Some scholars think Paul is speaking of his life before following Jesus. I don't think that's the case here, given that he has spent his whole life under the law and was an expert of the law himself. Instead, it's better to see verses 9 to 11 as Paul's way of identifying with the greater nation of Israel. This was a common practice in Paul's day. Consider Passover, which was just celebrated a month ago. Jews gather every year to remember the Exodus, God's deliverance of the Jews from Egypt under the leadership of Moses. And every year, as they remember, they engage in the dynamic experience of imagining themselves as the ones who escaped Egypt. They identify with their people. Here, Paul identifies himself with his people. He brings us back to a time when the law was not yet given. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Paul might be going all the way back to Adam in the Garden of Eden, since Adam and Eve arguably are the only two humans who've ever lived without a law. The first mention of a command is Genesis 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Once the command was given, the possibility of sin also became a reality. In this case, Adam and Eve now had the option to trust God and depend on him or trust in themselves and disobey God. When they ate from the tree, sin came to life in them and they experienced death. First spiritually, since they were separated from God, and eventually physically as well. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. So Paul states in verse 10 that the law, which was supposed to bring life, actually proved to be death. Leviticus 18 verse 4 and 5 speaks with similar language. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. As creator and as Lord over all things, God sets the parameters. To follow and obey him is to walk in life. Why? Because he is the author of life, the giver of life. And remember, his law reveals his heart, his nature. To obey him is to be like him. To reject him and disobey him is to bring on death. That's what Adam and Eve did. That's what we all do when we turn away from God's good law and attempt to live our own way. Sin seizes an opportunity through the commandment, Paul writes in verse 11, and deceives us. It kills us. Sin uses the very thing that should bring life to bring death. The law itself does not kill us. Sin weaponized God's good law against us, and we give in to sin, 
So we receive the just consequence of our choice. When I was a kid, I was playing at my family's cabin in the Okanagan. We were in the grass kicking a ball around, and the ball bounced over to the back door, coming to rest in a pile of old rope. When one of my siblings went over to retrieve the ball, the rope began to rattle, and we realized it was no rope. It was a rattlesnake. We shouted for help, and we ran and hid in the cabin, while my mother found a big net and caught the snake and flung it into the woods a distance away from us, and we were safe. The snake was coiled up, out of the way, but waiting to strike. It seemed harmless at first, but if we had gotten too close or thought it was asleep or ignored its rattling warning, different story. Sin is always ready to strike, poised for the kill. It is deceptive and dangerous. Sin tempts us by dressing itself up in fancy attire, rich jewelry, and expensive makeup. It shines its shoes and makes us desire it more than we desire God. It speaks lies about itself, about us, and about God. It distorts reality and pulls us away from life into death, and we give in. We run towards sin, seeking independence, not realizing that in the process we give up life himself. When we run towards sin, we run away from the only one who can truly satisfy everything we are seeking. Sin is deceptive and deadly. Do not give in. Do not get comfortable with sin and try to make friends with it. Its mission is to kill you. God's mission is to bring you life. When we take a long, hard look in the mirror of the law, we come up wanting. We come up lacking. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. The law says, don't, do not, do not, do not, do, do, do. And we look at it overwhelmed thinking, I can't, I can't, I can't. I can't do it. The demand on me is too much. Matthew 5, 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. No way. We cannot uphold God's good law on our own strength. All the law does is show us that we are in need. And God looks at us and says, I know. I know you can't. I see the hurt. I see the pain. I see the brokenness. I see the darkness in your heart. I see your hatred for my word. I see your hatred for me. But I love you. I want you. I'll do it instead. And the Lord of creation, life himself, stands up. He exits heaven. He sets aside his glory to become human. All his holiness, all his righteousness, all his goodness, wrapped up in the tender and fragile flesh of humanity, Jesus enters the scene. He lives the life we were made to live. He shows us the heart of the Father. He shows us the love of God. He loves us so much that he goes to the cross. He dies for us. He dies so that we can live. He dies the death that sin brings and he kills sin in the grave so we can rise from our death into life in him. He stands victorious, alive, and beckons us to come. The purpose of the law is to push sinners to the Savior. The law does not cure our sin. It only proves it to us. It provokes us to sin all the more. We are in desperate need of a cure for the deadly case of sin that we have all contracted. Consider the doctor again. Her diagnosis doesn't cause your condition, but neither does her diagnosis cure your condition. For that, you need serious medical intervention. We all need spiritual open heart surgery. 
The cure is not to try to follow the law after all. After everything we've seen, to try to go back and keep it all, to be a legalist about it, to try to create boxes and checklists and please God through our attempted goodness, we can't. It doesn't work. The cure is not to throw out the whole law and live as though the law doesn't exist. We have it coded into us. We can't escape the reality of God's created design in our lives. The smudged inkling of his image still impressed on us. The cure is surrender. The cure is repentance. God, I've been trying so hard. God, I've been doing everything except coming to you. God, I've been working on my own strength. God, I've been pushing you out of my mind. God, I can't do this. God, I can't do this. I need you. Jesus extends grace. Haven't we been seeing that up until now? But the beautiful reality is that grace Jesus offers doesn't just get us to zero. It fills our record to full. All the law is fulfilled in Jesus. All of it and all of him is offered to you. John 1 puts it this way, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus offers his perfect evaluation to us if we trust him. We are saved on his account, not our own. He has set us free. If you're a follower of Jesus, you aren't being measured on a scale of your rights and wrongs at all but you also aren't released to go and live carelessly either. You've been given a new spirit, the spirit of Jesus. Jesus takes us from serving sin and receiving the wage payment of death to serving righteousness, serving God and receiving the free gift of eternal life. He fills his people with the Holy Spirit to guide and to sanctify. Now we can obey God with redeemed, transformed hearts. Notice in today's passage, Romans 7 verse 12, Paul writes, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy. It is presently holy. It is not a past tense thing. The law has not passed away. It is only through the spirit of God in us that we can rightly handle the law. We've received power over sin because we are freed by Jesus from sin. We do not jettison the law once we are under grace, but neither does the law condemn us anymore since we now know God's heart for us and the life he offers. Romans 3 shows us that we do not get rid of the law. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. The law of God points to Jesus who truly reveals to us who God really is. And one day we will truly see his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness. Until that day, we are empowered by the spirit to continue contending for the faith, to fight the good fight, to wage war on sin and come out victorious. Jesus calls us to obedience and provides for us the means by which we can achieve that obedience. It is Jesus alive in us. It's true that sin kills us by seizing an opportunity through the law. But the promise of Jesus is resurrection life. Resurrection comes, but death comes first. You may have died from sin, 
But have you died to sin? Have you realized your ways are deadly and dangerous and are all leading you to separation from God forever? Jesus offers the only hope of life that we have. He is calling. Will you receive his good and outstretched hand to save you? If you are following Jesus already, he continues to transform you, to convict you of sin so that you can flee sin and run toward him. Will you walk in obedience and become more like him? Jesus allows us to become the people God made us to be. The law shows us who God really is, who we really are, and our need for a savior. But the savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, allows us to become who we were really meant to be, to really become like God himself, to become holy and righteous and good through the holiness and righteousness and goodness of Jesus himself. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God.